All right, this episode is coming to you a week after some comments made by a prolific evangelical leader in the Christian faith, Dr. I think he's a doctor, Dr. John MacArthur, who's a complementarian. And for those of you who don't know what complementarians are, I, I don't want to straw man the argument or like be reductionist in my in, in how I explain what it is. For those of you who don't know what it is, it's basically a theological position that men are the only um, gender that should be pastoring, leading, or preaching or teaching. So uh, MacArthur was asked about, asked in some sort of game that a bunch of white dudes on stage were playing about faith. I don't really know what the game was. He was asked about Beth Moore, who's a prominent female communicator. And he was asked to say one word about her, one phrase or something, and he said, go home. Which is... Um, Maybe on its face or maybe at face value, not as egregious as it makes as it might sound to some of you. I think for most of us, it's it sounds like exactly what it is, gross and evil and rooted in the same type of ideology that led the president before he was president to say, well, we all know what he said about where he could grab women. And. I wanted to, for this episode of the podcast, as I listened back to it, I wanted to make sure that we all saw the connection. I recorded this conversation months ago with a prominent female speaker, writer, voice, thought leader on the Christian, in the Christian faith. And I think it's important to elevate her voice in this conversation as you're listening to it. I want you to listen to this podcast with the comments in mind that I just shared with you that comes from this worldview of white male dominance in the evangelical faith. And it's something that I think we all need to band together to dismantle, not to try to change their minds, not to try to like somehow reform. Ironically enough, that's the tradition that John MacArthur uh, hails from. Not to try to reform, not to try to renovate, but to uproot, root and stem the stronghold, the power structure that has led to the kind of comments that we heard last week that so many people came out to condemn. And I, I'm glad to see that, glad to hear that. So uh, without further ado, I want to get into episode six of Existential in my conversation with a female thought leader friend of mine who is brilliant. I can't wait for you to hear all that she has to say. Let's jump into episode six of Existential. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, folks? I'm here with my new friend, Kathy Kong. And Kathy is a, a mom and a wife, a yoga instructor, an author, an activist. The list goes on and on of what Kathy is. But um, most importantly for all of you, she's my new friend. And I'm really glad to be talking to her. So, Kathy, why don't you say hi to everyone and just tell us a little bit about 
uh, yourself that I didn't already say. <laughs> hey, everyone. Good to hear your voice, Corey. Um, along with all of those other things, I'm in a new season, new stage of life. I left vocational ministry after 21 years um, back in February. So I've been in this career transition for the last couple of months trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and it's been a great time to do that because I have a college junior and a high school senior, and they're both in the midst of trying to figure out what's next in their lives as well. So Wow. It's good to model that for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a college se a senior. I'm not college senior. I, I'm not. I don't have a college senior yet. I have a high school senior. Uh, that's yes, about to be going into college. So that's uh, that's really scary. So no, you so you already done this. So now, yes, now I want to done it you, twice. I just want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about that process now, just selfishly, because uh, I'm I'm a dad who has a high schooler who's about to be entering into the college year. So what was that like for you? Oh, it was insane. It was insane. Um, and it's still insane, even though it's our third time around. Uh, the college search process, if that's where our children are headed, is so more competitive and expensive. And, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, how old am I? I'm 48. So it's been a while since I had to apply to college. And then my parents um, are immigrants. And so they didn't have to, they didn't navigate the higher education system here in the U.S. So they couldn't help me. Oh, wow. They didn't know how to help me. And so the search process felt so different because folks where we're at tend to, you know, if they have the time and the resources tend to be a lot more hands-on. Hmm. And so you can hire people to help, you know, with your ACT testing and your SAT testing and writing your essay and getting a coach and all this kind of stuff where I, I was I mean, back in the day, you wrote your college application on a typewriter or you hand wrote it. So, you know, back in the stone ages <laughs> kind of thing. So it, it's a, it's a different game. Um, I was actually just, boxing a friend who was asking about it. And I just said, you know what, you can be totally hands off and they will still end up with good choices. Oh, no, that's good to know. It, you know, it, it doesn't have to, you don't have to worry about, Oh, is this a, an elite school? Is this blah, blah. I mean, it's expensive. So, okay. <laughs> so you are Korean American, correct? Yes. Okay. So yes. you, I know that for the black community, um, college is a big deal. It was a huge deal mm -hmm. when I was coming up. Like it was, you go to college and you get your degree so you can get a good job. Now, we'll yes. probably get into some of this a little bit later in the conversation, at least I hope so, about like um, Asian being the, what, what we call the, the model minority in America. Um, but like, yes. do, is there a certain kind of pressure when it comes to higher education, being Korean American, um, that's like different from other other ethnicities. Uh, it's very much pressure. <laughs> yeah, and it you know, and 
And a lot of misconceptions around that because of the model minority myth. Um, But for me growing up, there was no question that I would go to college. It was just a question of where and for what. And would I also go on to get a master's degree? Uh, So there was a lot of pressure, even though my parents really could not help me navigate the whole college search process. There definitely was the assumption that I would excel in school so that I could go to a great school, get a great education, get a great job so that I could help support the family. So in your book, Raise Your Voice, which is awesome, by the way, um, I finished, I finished it last week. There's like so many times in the book that I laughed out loud a couple times. I gasped when, uh, which I'll get get to where I gasped later on. Uh, but I bring up the book because, uh, when you talk about the pressure for college education, you in the book sort of reference our internal struggle that we have to achieve. And, and you also talk about for you personally, the struggle that comes from heritage or parents or family. Can you talk a little bit more about that pressure? Like, is it bigger when you talked about the pressure for school? Is that bigger from inside of your own voice, like your Kathy's voice? Or is there some um, heritage that drives that pressure? Oh, it's definitely heritage. And then it takes a while to figure out how much of that is internal, internal, and how much of that is internal because I was surrounded by that all the time, right? So I have memories of writing out assignments and my father looking at my handwriting and telling me that it needed to be redone because my handwriting could be better. Now, I will say I have amazing handwriting. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and, uh, and my parents would make worksheets for my sister and I to do over the summer worksheets in math and Korean language. So it's hard to figure out how much of that was solely my parents and then how much of it also fed into my personality, which is one that already has a, um, a streak of perfectionism and, doing things correctly, you know, chicken and egg kind of stuff, but it definitely was there and it definitely fed into the process of writing the book and landing even on the topic of the book, raise your voice. Let's get into the book a little bit then. Um, I mentioned earlier that I I, I gasped audibly and here's where, where I gasped is when you were talking about working for the organization that you worked for, and you talked about a moment where something was mm-hmm. said or something was happening that you wanted to speak up about, and a friend of yours put their hand over your mouth. Yes. So, like, I, I, yes. I, I just, I was like in that moment, and I thought, what, like, what would I even do if someone put their hand over my mouth? Now, can you tell us for for people who didn't read the book, can you tell us what you did when the hand came over your mouth, and like what you felt in that moment? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was just 
I'm sure it was very quick, but it felt like an eternity trying to figure out how do I move the hand and compose myself because I was already emotional and nervous and anxious about asking questions and saying the things that were on my mind and be able to do it now that everybody had seen what had happened. Um, and I, I knew when you were talking about, you know, gasping in the book, I knew exactly what you were referring to because it's something that has stood out for so many people when they read the book. And it's always one of the questions that comes up in a podcast. And I, what I want to say too, is that even as I was writing about the incident and I relive it, I want to remind readers to think about the many times we have done that to ourselves. And in a lot of ways, I find that much more horrifying that even though we know there's something we want to say, we put our own hands over our own mouths and then choose not to move our hands. And then we do that to others without a physical action. We've all been in those meetings or situations where you make eye contact with other people in the room, right? And, and there it's the elephant in the room and you're making eye contact and you're trying to figure out like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is anyone going to say anything? And there's this kind of unspoken exchange and communication where somehow it's agreed upon that no one is going to be the one (laughs) to break it to that person that they are out of line. Yeah. Yeah. So the the book is Raise Your Voice. Now, let me ask you maybe a question. I don't know if anyone's asked this and it it may be... it's, it even sounds like an awkward question in my mind, which is why I want to ask it. Is, <laughs> is the book Raise Your Voice for white people? And the reason I ask that is because as you are writing this book as a minority, I hear mm-hmm. a lot in the book. I, I listen to a, uh, the audible version. I hear a lot of things that resonate with me as a black male who's worked in white evangelical spaces and felt like mm-hmm. people sort of, um, you know, figuratively put their hand over my mouth. I don't get the sense that white people feel that very often, but as you write it and as people have sort of um, given you feedback, do, do you, would you say that this is a book for white people? Uh, white people were not in my um, primary field of vision <laughs> when I wrote this book. <laughs> How's that? Um I suspected that white women Mm -hmm. would relate Mm -hmm. to certain parts of the book and also have very real experiences of being silenced and experiencing what I also write about, imposter syndrome. I uh, did not think of white men as part of my audience Mm -hmm. at all. And white women were a secondary audience for me which is dangerous when you write a book in Christian circles because white women are the ones who write or buy the books and promote the books and do all that kind of stuff. Um, But what's been great is that when white men have read the book, they realize that there was something for them to learn because they don't think about silencing themselves and maybe they ought to. Wow. Um, 
and they they read and have asked a lot of questions about having to check themselves because nobody has told them they should check themselves. Mm. So, you know, I guess the book does it in a very indirect way. Yeah, so, so almost like if, if a white male is reading this book, especially like a white evangelical male, they should, the mm-hmm. title would be lower your voice for them. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Or maybe silence your voice for even half the amount that you're used to using it. Wow. One of the other really fascinating things that you say in the book is that it was easier for you to give birth to your children than it was for you to write this book. Why do you say that? Yeah, I found it it was harder to write the book because um, married heterosexual women are supposed to have babies. They're supposed to give birth. So there's a lot of conversation around that. And in Christian evangelical circles, there's a lot of support around that. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have babies and give birth and talk about that amongst women. Uh, But you are not supposed to write a book that isn't specifically for women and isn't specifically written in that way. (laughs) And you're not supposed to self-promote and you're not supposed to see yourself as some sort of expert, especially in evangelical circles. Um, I can be an expert on mothering and marriage and, uh, in, in those very gendered spaces. But I felt like writing a book as, and writing a book about raising your voice, speaking your mind, pushing and making people uncomfortable and challenging the status quo. Again, I think that is just, that's outside what my area of expertise is supposed to be. So I felt it very vulnerable and um, nerve wracking to do it and to still be rooted in the evangelical space. I really, I mean, it would have been easier to write about being a mom. Kathy, what's your Enneagram? (laughs) You know, you're not supposed to ask that. (laughs) Am I I really not supposed to? I didn't didn't know that was a rule. Yeah. So I, the training I've gotten in the Enneagram Um, And the experience that I've had with my former spiritual director is that you don't ask and you only tell if you want to. Um, You also don't guess other people's numbers. Um, So I'm old school. I know. Yeah. 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 So I don't really talk. I can talk Enneagram and I can kind of talk around my Enneagram. I'm very familiar with it. Um, hopefully like others who've done the, any like work with the Enneagram, you think your number is the worst, unless you're a seven. I feel like sevens are always like, I'm a seven. I am that way. (laughs) But I won't say it out loud. I won't say the number out loud because I don't want to break the rules. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can share if you want to share. Um, I, I, I hinted at it at the start. I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Um, I am a lot harder on myself than I am on anyone else. Hmm. Um, So my inner critic is the loudest 
all the time. She does not shut up. Wow. So, at all. And, and I think the reason I ask, and, and, and when you talk about the inner critic, is that as someone who follows you on Twitter, read your book, and sort of has from afar watched you raise your voice, you don't seem to be a person who struggles internally uh, with raising <laughs> your voice, you know? And, right. and I think I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's kind of a misperception that when someone is outspoken, yes. that they don't have any internal hurdles to jump over right. to be right. outspoken. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I totally agree with you. I, um, I have always had a streak in me that internally is very driven around what's right and wrong. And, but that drive has not always been to actually do anything about it or to say anything about it, uh, at, you know, for survival and all of the other reasons why people keep their mouths shut. Um, you know, you just want to have dinner, (laughs) right? You just want to have dinner. So, uh, I, so it's hard because if people only, only see kind of social media, they don't see the day to day and the day to day for any one of us is making choices around the big and little things and saying what you think you should say or choosing not to. So there's definitely an inner dialogue and an inner struggle. Um, even when I am posting on social media. So I think the way social media works is fast. You know, what was news this morning will not necessarily be news by the end of today. Um, But I, and I mentioned this too in the book, is that I actually am praying That that idea of pray without ceasing is a very real thing for me because I am aware that there are power, there's power behind the tweets and the posts and the stories that I share. And so even though it can look like I am just knee-jerk reacting. And that does happen, but I would say the majority of what I'm posting and responding to, that is not knee-jerk at all. Um, I am processing, I'm a news junkie, so I'm you know, reading a lot, and I am discerning whether or not I'm going to engage or share or post and how I'm going to do it, what I will share on what platform. So it it's a constant it's a constant inner dialogue around that and then trying to discern, is it, is this what God is inviting me to? A, a lot of people, when they begin their journey of speaking up about issues of justice, certainly issues of race, mm-hmm. find a bit of a struggle or tension with their faith especially if they're American, given the fact that American theology is largely given to us by white men, Mm -hmm. many of whom did not recognize any other race as fully human. So you kind of have this natural tension that's like, 
as I become as I become aware of and awakened to social issues, justice issues, my faith is not always what I lead with. And you seem to be a person who who has maintained a sense of my faith is still very important to me mm-hmm. and it still matters deeply to me as I wrestle with justice and raising my voice to speak about issues of race. Mm-hmm. How, how, is, how has that come to be? Where does that come from? Can you talk a little bit about that? That is a great question. I don't think anyone's asked me that. Um, and I, and I, and I have said for a long time, um, that what compels me to speak up and to be engaged and take action is my faith, that it comes always from that place and then moving into some sort of response. It isn't the sole wrestling of what is unjust. It is always through the lens of my faith. Mm. And And I think part of it is, even though I didn't have the words or the language around the the strangeness of being offered a faith that was through the lens of primarily white men, I was very aware of that because I couldn't not be aware of it. I grew up in a Korean immigrant church. The churches I recall growing up in, we always borrowed church space from white congregations. Um, Our Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders for a long period of time were always interns from Moody Bible Institute or Trinity or Wheaton. And they were always white men. Um, I... It it was always people who had a better grasp, not of necessarily theology and scripture, but they had a better grasp of the language than my parents and their generation did. And so I was aware that, that there was that part of my faith, but I also saw that my parents and their generation believed in Jesus. Hmm. And it was a Jesus that they could sing to and pray to in Korean. And we could do it around barley tea and kimchi and rice and soup. So I think that at some level, even though I wasn't aware and didn't go through this process of trying to, you know, what we call today, decolonizing my faith, I was also very aware that there were ways to express and live their faith out that was not a white man. And so I think because of that, even though I have a lot, I still have a lot of issues with white evangelicalism. (laughs) Um, I still know that my parents go to the Korean immigrant church and they worship freely in Korean and their scripture, their hymnals, all in Korean. And, and yeah, they may have pictures of a white blonde Jesus in their church. I don't know. I haven't visited their church in a long time. Shame on me. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. But, but also that there's awareness that, um, 
because they still are faithful in that context, I'm still allowed to wrestle in mine. And, um, and so I laugh, like even this morning I was looking at Facebook and someone had posted a response to something like, well, you know, how is the black church biblical? And I was like, dude, 2019, That's come okay, on. So you talk about like being a person who maintains their integrity when dealing with really ridiculous stuff, like what you just mentioned on Facebook. Um, yeah. Are there instances you can remember that like you that like really stand out as moments where somebody said something on either to you or you saw it on social media and you really, really had to pray for how you respond to it? This happens to me on on an almost daily basis. And I just maybe just for me, I want to hear someone else have to deal with it also. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing because, because a few years ago, Twitter didn't exist, right? So all of this stuff is, and, and the, the first things that I got really active in were before Twitter and Instagram and all of this nonsense. And so there was a lot more emailing than anything else <laughs> because finding out about this stuff was slower. Um, so yeah, on a daily basis, it is trying to decide, you know what, is this the fight I need to fight today? Because there are thousands of other people reading this tweet or engaged on this post. I don't necessarily need to jump in and chime in um, and and add to the noise. Um, but sometimes, you know, I... I go, you know, I don't need to be the person, but I'll be honest today. I want to be that person. I want to be the thorn in this person's side. I'm going to be the one who spends the next hour and a half tweeting out as quickly as I can. Um, And that's, you know, Jesus and I will deal with that. (laughs) But because there's so much nonsense, you know, you know, there's a ton of nonsense. And and I, so I want to, shift gears a little bit and wander into space that I am um, not that comfortable or I shouldn't say comfortable. I'm just not that well versed in. Mm-hmm. And we kind of referenced it a little bit earlier. Um, this idea of the model minority. Yes. And you said that's a myth. Yes. Can you talk about that whole concept of model minority and what it's like uh, being Asian in America mm-hmm. dealing with that race dynamic because me from the outside looking in mm-hmm. when I hear model minority and when I experience things I live in the Bay Area so it, mm-hmm. there's, a lot, there's a lot of Asian influence here from the outside looking in it's easy for me as a black man to go yeah you guys are kind of model minority so mm-hmm. could you speak to that uh, for sure. someone who doesn't really understand it Sure. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those um, uh, phrases that's given as sort of it's meant to be a compliment. Right. And I'm sure at some point in my life, I thought, yeah, that's a compliment. And then you start figuring out what they what people actually mean by that. And um, one, uh, you know, it's this belief that somehow Asian Americans have arrived and we are the good minority. Right. We we come for the right reasons. We come 
legally, right? All of that is assumed in that language that we do, we follow the law, we follow the rules and we chase after the American dream and we succeed in it. And, but we are always the minority, right? And who is the one saying that we are the model minority? Well, it's generally white people. So why do they think that we are the model minority, right? So you start, you have to really start thinking about who is trying to paint with a very broad brush, this very diverse group of people falling under the, the label of Asian American. And, um, and I tell people, you know, what we really need to do is disaggregate the data. Um, we are not all successful. <laughs> we are not all, uh, getting multiple college degrees. We are not all making tons of money. We are not all X, Y, and Z. It all, it so much depends on when you immigrated or if you immigrated, because there are Asian Americans who are refugees, um, who sought asylum, who were allowed to come in for specific reasons. Um, so it all depends on when we came to the U.S., under what circumstances, um, what kind of education we come in with, what kind of support network is available, all of those things. And so by and large, actually, we are not that successful if you break down Asian American. And so I cringe at that because one, on some level, yes, my family my immediate family, my parents, my sister and I, we, we are living, quote, the American dream. You know, my sister and I, my parents were living in the, the suburbs of Chicago. We, you know, we have our families, we have our jobs, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, what that label and the myth of model minority does not take into consideration is that assimilation costs people. Wow. And so for us, it has cost language oh. and culture and family. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so that was okay. That, that makes absolute total sense. Cause you mentioned in the book, changing your name. Yeah. Um, and yes. so when you talk about assimilation, cause I was, I'm sitting here thinking yeah. like when, when people talk negatively about black people, they are saying things, they're talking about things like black on black crime. Mm -hmm. Assuming that black people are more, more prone to be violent, uneducated um, than white people are. Mm -hmm. So as I'm listening to you talk about like people assuming that you are successful and that you come here for the right reasons and all those things, they all seem positive, but when you when you say the word assimilation, and I thought back to you in the book talking about changing your name, that switched the light bulb. Mm -hmm. Well, and then and then that that myth, the model minority myth, is used to pit Asian Americans against blacks, right? We're the wedge. Yeah. And so sometimes when those conversations start to well up. There are Asian American activists outside of faith circles. And then those of us who root our activism in our faith, um, pushing that 
a new narrative saying, you know what, we're not going to be the wedge. We're not going to allow our assimilation to then separate us from other minorities, other people who have been historically othered. Because that's what that that's what that label does, right? You're you're the model minority, so you're forever the minority, even though they're patting us on the head for assimilating and becoming American. You are still the minority. You're still the other, and you have a place. It's over there, and so um, so yeah. And I've seen it play out in really unhelpful, ugly, ugly ways. Um, Asian Americans and the Black community, the Asian American community and the Latino community, right? It's, it's hey, maybe we should sit down and talk because there's a lot going on that we should be fighting for together. Wow. Yeah. That's so true. And that's so, so, so good. I'm, I'm really glad that you spoke to that. That's I think eye-opening for a lot of people. It's eye-opening for me, but I'm sure it's eye-opening for a lot of people listening. Now, I meant to ask you about this in the beginning mm-hmm. um, and make a confession. I I can't I can't bend over and touch my toes. So okay. I've always had, right, but I've always had this like <laughs> fascination with yoga. Wanted to do yoga, but I'm like I can't do yoga. If you can't bend over and touch your toes, how do you do yoga? Now, you're a yoga instructor. Yes, and. I want, and I think that seems to be a, a really important part of of like what you do and who you are. Can can you speak to the experience with yoga, how that plays a role in your activism, in your faith, in who you are as a person? Yeah, so it's um, it's an ongoing journey and process. I wrestle uh, a lot around practicing and teaching yoga as a non. South Asian person who is also a Christian. Um, and the yoga that is taught and practiced here in the U S is so, uh, <laughs> Westernized and really all of that kind of uh, Western. Yeah. All of that. And, um, and so it's, it, so that your listeners know, like I wrestle with what does it look like to be, uh, someone in my body as a Christian teaching and practicing yoga. That is not a Christian practice. Mm. Um, you know, where do I draw the line? Where is, wh- what is cultural appropriation in that space? So I, I wrestle with that. That being said, for me, uh, it is the space in which I am very intentional about my body and my mind and my spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, some people find it in running. I don't run. I don't pay to run. I'm not going to pay money to run. That is, seems really stupid to me. But my husband used to be a runner and he would say he would just kind of get in a groove and be able to like really focus on his breath and be able to pray. And I'm like, I am dying. I can't catch my breath. I can't pray. So yoga is that space for me where I am allowed to do what I say my practice of prayer is supposed to be, which is the emptying of myself mm. and just get out of my head and, uh, and be able to 
be aware of what is going on in my breath and in my body, which has a lot to do with what's going on in my soul and in my mind. Mm -hmm. I just don't take the time to put two and two together. And so I love that. And I love being able to invite people into an hour and tell them, you know, that checklist you have, we're going to totally ignore that for the next hour. Do you do yoga every day? I do. I do. So I'm either teaching or practicing every day. Um, it's been really good okay. for me and hopefully my family thinks it's good. <laughs> so can someone who can't touch their toes do yoga? Yes. Uh, yoga is not about the poses. It's not about the asanas, even though, again, I think that that's what, that's how Instagram and social media and US yoga has ruined yoga because people think it's all about the cool and crazy poses, which are so fun if that's your jam. But um, it's, it's not about that. It really is about connecting your movement to your breath. Wow. And you don't have to be able to touch your toes. Okay. Some people will never be able to touch their toes, and it's okay. That is terrible news. Yeah. I guess I accepted that years ago. I'm 41 years old now, and I've never bent over and touched my toes. So at this point, I have to accept that I have limitations. Yeah, and there's there are no prizes for there touching toes. There is not a toes. prize for it. I mean, no, there is yeah. not. There is not at all. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's I'm I am really, really fascinated with um the idea of yoga and the body and breath because it feels very ancient to me. And mm-hmm. while a lot of Christians certainly do have their hang-ups when it comes to yoga, mm-hmm. the more I understand ancient Jewish practice of prayer, a lot mm-hmm. of breathing, and there was not this separation of body and spirit and mind and all, it was Correct. all connected. So the idea of using yoga for um, deeper spiritual connection really, really resonates with me, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how I think um, kind of white evangelicalism has ruined things for yeah. us. And, and our histories, right, for Black Americans who are not immigrants, right? right? You are not an immigrant. Um, and and the the history of slavery and stripping an entire people of their culture and then for immigrants and refugees the idea that assimilation is required which also strips away culture what that does is it removes us from the unique spaces in which i believe god was working in our cultures to help us engage with the spirit and the body because we were told all of those things are bad and evil. Yeah. Well, Kathy, it's been so great talking to you. I mean, I could talk for the next hour, but I know neither of us have time for that, but like, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Is there anything that you want to share um, that you haven't shared already? Just some parting words for people that are listening. I just want to encourage everyone, um, you're not going to always get it right. Mm. You're not going to get it right. And in this day and age, um, as somebody who wants to get it right, uh, I think we need to show some grace to people 
we're all on a in a process and on a journey. And so um, be gracious to yourself as well as others as you learn to raise your voice. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I will put um, a link to the book in the show notes. Is there anything anywhere else people besides, besides the book, which we certainly will make sure people can get their hands on besides the book. Is there anywhere else people can connect with you? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram and Twitter. The handle there um, for both spaces is at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong. And then I have a blog, kathykong.com, where I occasionally (laughs) am still writing. Uh, And those are the three main spaces people can find me. And then I have an author page on Facebook as well. Awesome. Well, Kathy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's really been great. Thanks, Corey. All right, all right, all right. That was my friend, Kathy Kong. So brilliant, so great. Thanks for coming on the show, Kathy. I want to, again, thank Comfort Fit for the music. Again, the song is called Sorry, which is what you will be if you don't subscribe to this podcast. At least I think you'll be sorry. Thank you for all of you who have rated, who have commented, who have shared, who have left a review. Uh, just really important. It means a lot that you guys will take the time to do that. I encourage any of you who haven't to take the time to do that now. And uh, I want to make sure that you take a look at the show notes so that you can stay in touch with Kathy and myself and the podcast. And if you're listening to this right now, thank you for being the type of person who contends for a better world together with all of us, one conversation at a time. Thank you.